I think probably one of the most important questions that we could ever answer in our lives is, who is Jesus Christ? I've heard that question asked many different ways. Jesus Christ even asked it of his disciples. Who do men say that I am? Somebody asked you that question this morning. What would be your first answer? Who is Jesus Christ? And what do we really believe about him? Jesus Christ um, is not just who we want him to be. I've heard that said. Um, I've heard a parent say it to their child. Mommy, who's Jesus? He's whoever you want him to be. If you want him to be a Santa Claus figure who gives you everything you need all the time, whenever you need it, that's who he is. If you don't believe that he really exists, that's okay. He's not... He can be whoever you want him to be. Jesus was a historic figure. There was a man who was named Jesus who walked on the earth historically about 2,000 years ago. And men since that time have been claiming that they know about him and who he is and saying things about him, many of which just are not true. I was going through this with the, uh, the teen group and the college career group the last couple of weeks about the deity of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is God. There are many people who would claim that if you ask them, who is Jesus? They'll say, well, he was a, he was a great teacher. He, he, somebody who taught good things and you can model your life after some of the things that he said. To which I would reply, not true. Jesus was not a good teacher. He was a divine teacher because he was God. And the things that he claimed, he claimed to be sinless. He claimed to come from heaven. He claimed to know God before the foundation of the world. He claimed that he is the only way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He claimed to have the power to forgive sin. Who else could do all these things but God himself? And if you claim that Jesus is a good teacher, but you don't believe that he's God, he's not a good teacher. Because if he's not God, and he claimed to be God, then what was he doing? Lying about it? Was he self-deceived? Was he a crazy man? We have this this argument that was made popular by C.S. Lewis called the, the liar, lunatic lord argument. And basically he says you can't have it both ways. Either you accept what Jesus claimed about himself, and you understand that to be true, or you don't. Because if it's not, then Jesus was either lying about it, or he was deluded. And either way, he's not Lord. But if he is who he says he is, and he is who he claims to be, then he's the king of the universe. He is the one to whom we owe our lives. He's the creator In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him and for Him. He's the creator and sustainer of our life. Al mentioned this morning that this is Palm Sunday. I remember Palm Sunday as a kid um, in the Methodist church, and they would hand out palm leaves to all the kids as they were leaving church. And I remember bringing it home and setting it on my bureau and having no clue why I was carrying a palm leaf home. But it was fun. I don't think I'd ever seen a palm leaf, really. And here we go, we got a palm leaf. And 
bring it home, and there's something, something to do with, with Jesus, but I wasn't really sure what that was all about. Today, historically, is the day that we celebrate what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. That was a very significant event, and I want to explain this morning why that was so significant and explain a little bit about uh, what was happening on that day. We're going to cover a wide span of history this morning. This is kind of an overview, a big picture look at uh, what was going on on that day and hopefully how it impacts our life and um, why it was so important and what it should mean to us today. I want to start by looking at two Old Testament passages with you. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. If you find the big prophets in the middle, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it's right after Ezekiel. These are two passages in the Old Testament of hundreds that we could look at this morning, where God promised that one day there would come a king on this earth who will sit on a throne and who will rule and reign in perfect righteousness. And before we get into the reading of of the word here, wouldn't that be nice? How many of you this year have complained about our government. You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you wish that things were different in our country? That we would have policies that reflect righteousness? That we wouldn't have to redefine what marriage is or deal with homosexuality? That we wouldn't have to to deal with abortion? We wouldn't have to deal with moral things that are now made into policy in our country that, that, that affect our lives. Taxation. I think as you look through history, there have been attempts that have been made to try to create the perfect environment. The communist experiment was one of those. It failed. Rome was one of those. It failed. America probably was one of those that has succeeded fairly well, but is failing. And if you look through history at every civilization that has tried to make a perfect environment, a good environment, one in which men can thrive, why do they fail? Why did the Roman Empire fall? Corruption of the human heart. Nothing more, nothing less. Why did the communist experiment fail? If you read about communism, you know, we have this kind of blacklist in our mind that, um, that communism is bad. If you read the, the principles of what they were trying to do, it's really not all that bad. But it failed because of corruption. It failed because the people who were trying to implement it took too much for themselves. They were greedy. Greed, selfishness, lust, anger, these are the things that destroy society. And if we had a leader who was truly righteous, 
And without sin, how would that change our lives? I think it would change everything. Israel were were the chosen people of God, and they were promised from days long ago that there would come one someday who would rule and reign on the earth in perfect righteousness. Swords would be melted down and turned into plowshares. There would be no more war. No more strife between people. The reign of Christ, the reign of this one that would come, the Messiah, would be so perfect that that life itself will change. The lion and the lamb will lie down together. Even the animal kingdom will come back into order. Amazing, amazing prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. I'd like you to read two of them with me this morning. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. This is Daniel interpreting the dream of the king. And in his dream, he interpreted uh, for the king facets of history, of kingdoms that were, were going to come and go, come and go. And we, we believe that they refer to specific kingdoms that actually did come and go, many of them, the Babylonian kingdom, the Persian kingdom, the Greek, Greeks and the Romans. We come to verse 44, and he talks about another kingdom. He says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. Historically, kingdoms have come, and they fail, and someone else comes in and takes over. And then another kingdom rises to power and then they fail and another kingdom rises to power and they fail and and land has exchanged all through history you know here in America we have this tiny little slice of history that we've lived in right a couple hundred years and we're enjoying the fruits of of our forefathers and what they put into place for us but eventually kingdoms fail and they fail because of the corruption of men but there's coming a, a king and a kingdom whose kingdom will never end it will not fail that kingdom will not be left for another people it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms but it will itself endure forever Uh, flip over to Zechariah if you find Matthew in the New Testament just go backward a few pages and you'll find Zechariah chapter 9 Verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a 
an earth-dominating king, a king that will rule over the entire planet. The whole, the whole globe will be run by him. There's never been a kingdom like that in the history of mankind. Which means if these prophecies are true, then it's still coming. It hasn't happened yet. But there was a time in history where Israel believed that it was about to happen right then. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Who was Jesus Christ? What was he doing when he was riding into Jerusalem on the donkey that day? Um, Al read from Mark chapter 11. I'd like you to turn to Matthew 21. And I'm going to just read through this account again. And then I want to go back in time and trace God's promise of the coming king right from Genesis, right up through this passage that we're going to read, and then talk about the reaction of the people to Jesus coming in to Jerusalem and hopefully make some application to our life. So that's where we're, where we're headed this morning. So Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 says, And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Beth, uh, Bethpage, To the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now this took place, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. And we just read this in Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid them on their garments on which he sat. And and most of the multitude spread their garments in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now we know that, theologically speaking, God is in control of everything. He's the creator, he's the sustainer, he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of all. And we believe that. I hope you believe that. Um, We're not here by chance. We didn't evolve biologically. God put Adam and Eve on the earth in the beginning and populated this earth with people according to his purpose, according to his plan. And we're here because he wants us to be here. I want you to look at um, some Old Testament verses with me. Look at Psalm 103 in verse 19. This is actually the memory verse for the kids in junior church this morning. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. We don't see him. He doesn't have a physical throne on the earth. But we know that God our Father, the creator of all, has authority over all the earth. He is the true king, and his kingdom exists from beginning of time until eternity. There's never a time when he hasn't been king. 
through all the term, uh, tumultuous history of mankind on the earth, God has never not been on the throne. He's always on the throne, and we claim that, we believe that, uh, we sing about it, we say it, especially when we have hard times in life, and we comfort one another with those words. Don't worry, God is still on the throne. He knows everything that's going on. Nothing happens without him allowing it to happen. And these verses are true. God is sovereign. God knows everything that happens. And he does know the details of our lives. His sovereignty rules over all. And in his sovereignty, God revealed a plan from the beginning of time that would unfold over the, hist- uh, the history of mankind. And it began with a single prophecy way back in the book of Genesis. And you know the account of Adam and Eve where uh, Satan came to Eve and tempted her to disobey God. God had given Adam and Eve a single command, which was to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan came along and said, did God really say that? And then he denied the word of God and said, no, you won't surely die if you eat that fruit. God is just going to be jealous of you, but he doesn't want you to know what he knows. He's holding back from you. And so Eve was tempted And she disobeyed the command to eat or not eat of that fruit. Adam followed her and disobeyed the command to not eat of that fruit. And it threw mankind into um, what we will call depravity, into a sinful state. Um, As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They hid in the bushes. You can't hide in the bushes from God. God knows where you are. But they hid anyway. And they tried to hide themselves from God. And God said, where are you, Adam? And Adam said, I'm, I'm hiding myself from you. And he said, why are you hiding yourself from me? And he said, because, and he asked him, did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to eat? And the answer was obvious, yes. And then God talks to them. And in that conversation, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. There's a statement made that's very important. Blame shifting was going on. God asked Adam in verse 11, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me She gave me from the tree and I ate. So he's shifting the blame off of himself and saying it wasn't my fault I did this. We still do the same thing today. So the Lord God says to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent, he deceived me. And so she shifts the blame away from herself, which we all try to do. And so God focuses attention now on Satan, on the serpent. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Circle verse 15. Verse 15 is a foundational prophecy that we need to understand that begins this whole idea of what God was going to do to to redeem mankind that culminated in Jesus Christ. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now that's true. Women don't like snakes, generally. Men don't like snakes, generally. Snakes are a pain. 
They have no real memory. They don't make good pets. They're fun to look at, but that's about it. What do they do? They, they, they hide and wait and they, they strike. Right? I will put enmity between you and the woman. True. But then he says this, and between your seed and her seed. So the seed he's talking about here is future generations. So in the future, there will be this rift between Satan or the seed of Satan and the woman or the seed of the woman. And what's going to happen? He, that is the seed of the woman, will bruise you on the head. And you, the seed of Satan, will bruise him on the heel. As we see prophecy unfolding in the Old Testament up until the coming of Jesus Christ, we realize that there is a there's an epic conflict going on between Satan and God. We see it in the book of Job, where Job uh, was threatened by Satan to the point where he took his health away, took his family away, took his job away, and God knew all along what he was doing. And we see this, this battle between God and Satan all the way through. Now, in the world, people recognize that there's a battle going on between good and evil, right? We hear it all the time in the stories that are told. We hear it all the time in movies that are portrayed. You know, some of the more popular films of our day, The Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or some of those, there's this epic battle between good and evil going on. And you're hoping in the end that what will happen? Good will triumph, right? Let me say this right off the bat. The battle is already done. There is no epic struggle between good and evil because God, there is, there is none other like God. Satan is not like God and there's these two big titan gods that are clashing against each other. Satan is a created being. And Satan is an angel who has fallen. And his doom is already set. We know that. He's already defeated. But God, for a time, has allowed him to be a part of what's going on in our, in our society, in humankind, uh, in the earth. And in this prophecy, God says, in the end, the seed of the woman is going to make a crushing blow to the head of the serpent. So if you're in a fight, would you rather hit somebody's heel or their head? If you're trying to win the fight. I was watching a little bit of uh, mixed martial arts last night, and the guys were not aiming for their heels. They were aiming for the head. And as soon as one guy went down, that's all they were after. They, they pounced on top of him, and boom, 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 boom. They're hitting their head until the guy's knocked out. That's what they're trying to do. Our head is, is the, the center of our being. You get a strike on your head. If you have a head injury, you're done. That's why we wear helmets. Protect our head. Right? Nobody wants to get a head injury because you'll, you'll die from a head injury. The seed of the woman is going to give a head injury to the seed of Satan. And Satan will blow a strike against the seed of the woman. But where's he going to hit? He's going to hit the heel. It'll hurt, but it's not a devastating blow. 
And much of, many of our theologians will say that this is a direct reference to the crucifixion of Christ. So Jesus comes in fulfillment of all the scripture we're about to read, and Satan thinks he has him up against the ropes because he's caused everybody to reject the kingship of Christ, and they're going to kill him, and they're going to gain this victory. But little did they know, this was all a part of the plan of God. He is sovereign over the entire earth. And his plan from the beginning was to have this king come and die, but not stay dead, but to raise again from the dead so that he can conquer death and sin and offer salvation the way that he does today. So this, this phrase and this verse forms the foundation for what God's going to do to redeem you and me, to forgive our sin and to offer salvation to us. It's going to come through the seed of the woman. That promise was then given through a specific set of people throughout the Old Testament. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 12. God calls a man named Abram out of his country and he says, I want you to leave and I want you to go where I'm going to take you. And the Lord said to Abram in chapter 12, verse 1, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse you, um, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Again, speaking of the future. So there's the seed of the woman. God promised that a descendant of Eve someday would blow a crushing, uh, would make a crushing blow on the head of Satan. And now God keeps that promise through Abraham. And he calls Abraham out and he says, through you, all the, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is repeated again in chapter 13, 15, 17, and 22 of Genesis. And you can read it as God gives this covenant with Abraham. The promise is then promulgated through one of Abraham's sons and not the other. Right? Genesis chapter 15, verse 4. God makes these promises to Abram, and you know he, he doesn't have any children, so he's trying to figure out what to do. And, and he and Sarah talk about it. They're old now. They're past childbearing age. And, and Sarah says, well, Maybe it's not going to come through me. Maybe you have to have relations with someone else, and it'll come through somebody in our household. So he goes and has a son by Hagar, whose name was Ishmael. And God comes, and in verse 4 he says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And we know through the whole circumstances and set of circumstances that, that um, came through chapter 16 and 17, it wasn't Ishmael. It was the son that was given to Sarah. And she became pregnant in her old age and had a son. And God said, through him, um, the promise will come to pass. Isaac has two sons. They're twins. They're born at the same time. But only through one of those sons was the promise given. Right? It was through Jacob and not Esau. 
you look at Romans 9, verse 13, we know that this was the case. Or verse 11, it says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. And so the promise now went through Abraham, through Isaac, and now through Jacob, and not Esau. The promise then passed to one of Jacob's sons, which was Judah. And I want you to go back to Genesis and look at verse 40, uh, chapter 49. And here, in Genesis 49.10, we get the first glimpse that this promised coming descendant of Eve would be a king. When in Genesis 49, verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of of the peoples. And so you can you can trace the promise through Eve, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and now through Judah, whose descendants would be rulers. The scepter will not depart from his hand. The ruler's staff will not depart out of his hand until Shiloh comes, until the time of peace comes. Um, turn to Exodus 19. <clears throat> God then continues this promise of a coming redeemer, a coming king, through Moses. And in verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is uh, Exodus 19, verse 4. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And so the covenant that God is making through Abraham is now passing on through Moses to the people of Israel and saying, if you keep my covenant, if you keep my law, I will be a king to you. Which he was. We call it a theocracy. God was king. In Israel, and this lasted for several years through history. Um, if you go through up through Joshua and the division of the land, go through the judges when Israel went through that horrible period of disobeying God and being judged and then coming back, all through that whole period, Israel didn't have a physical king that was a descendant through the line, but God was their king. But ultimately, they rejected God as king. And look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. All this is leading up to Christ. We just need to get through a little bit of historic background. In 1 Samuel 8 verse 4, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. So appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said that, to give a king to us, to judge us. 
And so Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so the kingship, the the era of the kings in Israel's history begins with King Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then the kings of the, the divided kingdom. So who is, the, who is the promise going to be passed through next? It would be King David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 8. Now therefore you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of all the great men who are on the earth. Sounds a little bit like what he said to Abraham, right? I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Sounds like the promise of land that God gave to Abraham. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more, as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. There's a double reference here. This is talking about Solomon. True. But look what he says in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. So there's a prophecy, still future now, that's come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Moses, David, and the king is still coming through this line. The prophecies about this abound in the Old Testament. I'm not going to take any more time to read more about them, but Numbers 24 talks about a conqueror who will come and crush the enemies of Israel In Psalm 2, he says he will break them with a rod of iron. In Psalm 45, he talks about a sword, arrows. In in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, the the verse that we uh, quote all the time at Christmas time, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and of his government there shall be no end. There's there's an eternal part of this. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 23 says Israel will dwell securely. Micah chapter 5 talks about a deliverer that's coming. So what was Israel expecting when the Messiah came? They were expecting somebody who would come and kick the Roman soldiers back to Rome. Get him out. He would have an army with him. He would use a sword. He would use arrows. He would use force to make his kingdom established. And when that happened, his kingdom would be forever. And he, from there, from Jerusalem, would then rule over all the earth. That was, a, that was a, a common and right expectation. If you were living in Israel at the time, and Jesus came on the scene and said, I'm the one, what would you have expected? Nothing less. They weren't expecting a Messiah who was going to die. They were expecting one who was going to conquer. 
not sin and death, but people and governments and armies. They weren't expecting a a Messiah who would suffer. They hadn't read Isaiah 53 very clearly. The word Hosanna, as you've already heard this morning, means save us, deliver us, help us. And what were they crying when Jesus walked into Jerusalem? Hosanna, help us, save us, deliver us. From what? From the Romans. It wasn't his plan. Oh, he was there to deliver them, all right. But not from what they expected. And God's eternal plan for the redemption of mankind flowed all the way through. And if you look, um, just turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew begins his gospel with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of who? David. The son of who? Abraham. Who had the right to sit on the throne and to be the Messiah? It was Jesus Christ. He had the birthright. And Matthew takes the time to go through all of his descendants, both on Joseph's side and on Mary's side. And they all flowed through Judah. They all flowed through David. And they all flowed back to Abraham. And you can read them. They're all all there. Jesus had the legal right to sit on the throne, and to establish that kingdom. But what do we learn about Jesus Christ and his kingship as he comes into Jerusalem? And here's where I want to make it as practical as I can make it. Four things I want you to try to remember this morning. The entry into Jerusalem proved that he is the Messiah. He is the true king. There was no question about that. He had everything that he needed to have in place for him to be the one who was going to set up that kingdom. And could he have? Yes, he could have kicked Rome right back to Rome. He could have established his kingdom right then and there. But God had a different plan, another plan, one that unfolded as as we know it did. But he had all the credentials. He was born through the line of Abraham, through the line of Judah, and through David. He was born right where they said the Messiah was going to be born. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little amongst the nations, out of you shall come forth one who shall be ruler, whose goings forth has been from old, from from olden times. There's an eternal concept there as well. Where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem, right where he said it was going to be born. Isaiah chapter 4 Um, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Um, I'm going to misquote it if I don't read it. Another verse that we use often around Christmas time. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Who was Jesus born of? A virgin. He was of the line of Abraham, Judah, David, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. He was to be divine. His name would be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, He would have to have 
the attributes of God in his life if, if he were to be the true Messiah. What did he do? He healed diseases. He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He stopped a storm by holding up his hand and saying, peace, be still. He raised Lazarus from the dead. What else do you need? He was showing his power every time he did a miracle. He showed his power over sickness. He showed his power over nature. He showed his power over death. The Messiah should have been able to do these things, and he did. And he rode into Jerusalem exactly as the prophecy foretold. We read that in Zechariah, right? How would he come into Jerusalem? Riding on the foal of a donkey. And that's exactly what he did. So he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the Messiah. He is the one. He was the one that God called to be the king over all of the earth. But it didn't happen that way, did it? He didn't establish his kingdom then. Second, the entry into Jerusalem showed what kind of king he could have been, but wasn't. The people were ready to crown him king right then and there. There were about 3,000 people that had gathered on that day. Some went before him, some went after him, and there was this big parade that went down the street into Jerusalem. He had the ability to, to establish a physical kingdom and be the rightful king right then and there. His disciples could have been high officials in his kingdom. Lords. He could have deposed Pilate. He stood right before him. He could have taken Pilate out and said, be gone. He could have given the wealth of the world to his followers because he's the owner of everything. He had already proven that, right, with fish and bread. 5,000 people came to hear him. They didn't have food, and he turned nothing into something. And he fed them. How'd you like to have a government that does that? Give you all the money you need, give you all the land you need, give you all the food you need. Hey, we can just go vacation for the rest of our lives. That's what we want. We want a king with that kind of power. And who could have stopped him? No one. He is the one to whom every knee will bow. He's the Alpha and the Omega, he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And he certainly had the power to become their physical king. You remember what happened to the soldiers when they went to arrest him in the garden? They asked, is this the one? Are you the one? He said, I am he. He said, I am. And what happened to them? They fell over backwards, all of them, when he, when he said those words. And Peter wanted to take up his sword. He says, no, 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 Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that I could have called legions of angels and they would have come to my aid if I asked them to? Matthew 26, 3 says that. He could have become their physical king right then. So the entry shows what kind of king he could have been. But it also showed what kind of king he truly is. And this is where we got to get real specific. What was his kingdom? What was its nature? What is his authority? We realize right away that the kingdom that Jesus was offering is unlike any other kingdom on this earth. It doesn't follow the rules. It's not after the same pattern, and which is why all the people of Israel were so confused and disappointed when it unfolded the way that it did. Who were Jesus' highest officials? 
Fishermen. Nobodies. Even in our day today, we've got, you know, we don't have noble blood in, in America, but it helps to know people, doesn't it? If your name is Kennedy, you've got a lot better shot of being a senator than someone who doesn't have that name. Because there are somebodies. There are people who are well-known, nobles. But in God's kingdom, not many nobles are called. God uses the nobodies of this earth. And you look at the disciples. Who were they? We never heard of them until, until Jesus called them. They were his highest officials. To be great in his kingdom didn't mean that you had a lot of money, that you were tall, that you were good looking, that you had a good speaking voice. To be great in his kingdom meant that you were a true disciple, a learner. To be the least among men. He said it flat out. To be great in my kingdom, you need to be the least of men. Humility and submission are the highest goals in his kingdom. What? That makes no sense. We want to establish our authority. We want the army to come in and wipe these guys out. We need a military leader. And Jesus went about establishing his kingdom in a totally different way. To be great in his kingdom means to hear his words and to obey his commands. This is what gives rank in the kingdom of God. Right? The two disciples were fighting over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to sit at your right hand? The moms even got involved. Because they wanted their sons to be higher up. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. The greatest shall be the least, and the least shall be the greatest. The poorest man who accepts Jesus Christ becomes the noble in the kingdom of God. What about money? Jesus had none. He never had a job. He never had an income. Money was not a part of his kingdom, though he spoke of money much. Most of it was to try to be a barometer about what our hearts were really like. Here rides Jesus Christ, the poorest man of all, on the poorest animal of all. Even the president, when he rides around, rides around what's, the, what's the name of his car? The Beast? I think it's called The Beast. I was sharing this with some of the kids a few months ago, and I looked up some of the stuff about the presidential car. Crazy. It's got this, I think it weighs something like 16,000 pounds, because it's all armored, and it's got glass that's six inches thick, and it's, it's, it's got these tires that can't deflate. It's all, it's all designed to protect him. And wherever he goes, he, he, he rides in on the beast. What would be fit for the king of the universe to ride in on? An elephant? At least he'd be up high. A camel? Not a donkey. And that donkey was borrowed. It didn't even belong to him. Here rides Christ the king, the highest in this kingdom, the first, the prince. But he was about to give his life. He was about to make the ultimate sacrifice. There were no banners, there were no trumpets, there was no music, there was no ceremony. People were tossing their, their clothes that they had on themselves as a, as a carpet for him to, to go by. Picking leaves off the trees and making this, this road. There was nothing... 
noble about it. It was all poor. There was no gold, no purple cloth, just people grabbing whatever they could grab and throwing it in front of them. There was no army. Where were they? Nobody was carrying swords. Nobody had orders issued to go in and take Jerusalem. Or to, to, There was none of that. There were thousands who greeted him, but what were they holding in their hands? Palm branches. Not swords. Not machine guns. There was victory happening, but there was no battle. There was no blood. There were no bodies strewn across the streets. There were no burned cities. No devastation. He didn't bomb Jerusalem. He's the king of peace. And so it is today. There was no ceremony. Even in the simplest of occasions in our lives, we have ceremonies. People graduate. People get married. Inaugurations of people into office. We celebrate. We, we, we have some kind of ceremony. Even sporting events. But there were no trumpets. There were no shows. CNN wasn't there covering it. No special dress. No music. He walked in unassumed. Unassumedly. There were no taxes. Nobody was to make payment to enter this kingdom. The payment had already been made or was about to be made. There's no cost to get into the kingdom of, of Christ other than belief. There's no charge to become a Christian. No tithe, no fees, no exchange of money. In fact, what's the first thing he did when he rode into Jerusalem? He threw over the money changers' tables in the temple because they were charging. You'd think that he would go to the, you know, if he was going to be king, he would go to the political head of the, of the city, but he didn't. He walked right into the temple, the religious center, and he upset everything and said, you're doing it wrong. You can't charge for this. Even the animals were, were considered as he rode in on the donkey, reminds us again that even the animal kingdom will come into balance when Christ is on the throne. And the last thing, and this is really the point of it, the entry into Jerusalem brought people face to face with Christ's kingdom. They had to do something with it. And so do we. Now don't get me wrong, Jesus Christ is coming back. In all those prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about him Ruling and reigning in righteousness from Jerusalem with a rod of iron will happen. It didn't happen yet, but it will happen. And when he comes back the second time, it will be much different than the first time. It won't be in an obscure village. It won't be in a stable. It will be in the sky where everybody can see him coming. And they'll know. But what do you do? What do I do with this king? This odd king. This odd kingdom that doesn't line up with, with my understanding of what a king and king kingdom should be. And every person who was there were moved in some way, weren't they? Some were moved with contempt. Look at that fool riding in on a donkey. That's not the kind of king I want. Not him. Riding in like he's some kind of king. What did they put on his head to mock him? What did they put in his hand to mock him? What did they put over his shoulders to mock him? Ha, you're a king, let's make you look like a real one. 
Some were moved with unbelief. I just cannot accept the fact that this is the king. I won't believe it. I don't want to believe it. I want somebody else. He's not what I expect. And there's rejection. Some were moved with curiosity. Who, who is this? Crowds of people followed him to find out, who, who is this? Who is this man who claims that he's the king? No one ever taught like him. He teaches with authority. I need to hear more about this. And he had many followers who were kind of on the fringes. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're on the fringe. You've, you've heard the gospel and you've heard about who Jesus Christ is, but you're like, eh, I'm not sure. Some were moved with envy. The Pharisees hated him from day one. They tried to destroy him at every opportunity they could get because Christ was infringing upon their territory. He has no right to take over what I have established. Some of us might be that way. This is my life. No way I'm going to give over control of my life to anyone. But some were moved with joy because they knew what was happening. They knew as Christ was coming into Jerusalem that this was the true king. This was the the promised Messiah. And though he was going to the cross, they understood that his suffering must take place. So the gospel of Jesus Christ we preach today. That Jesus Christ, he came into Jerusalem for one purpose really. And that was to go to the cross. God had planned from eternity past for that event to happen that way. God knew that he wasn't going to establish his kingdom on earth then. He knew that he had a mission that had to be accomplished. He had to be put to death. He had to be crucified. He had to suffer and he had to die. So that the punishment for sin for all of mankind could be placed on him. And so that true salvation and an understanding of who he really is, the true king of the universe could be made plain to any man who would believe and any woman who would believe. Jesus Christ died for you. He died for me. He suffered and bled so that the punishment for our sin could be taken away from us and put on him. And what he requires of you and me is to believe it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We have to recognize that sin is detestable to God, and what, God, what Jesus Christ was conquering was not the Romans. It was your sin and my sin. He loves you. He gave himself for you. And he promised that if you believe in him, he will save you. He will justify you. He will redeem you and bring you into a right relationship with God. So what are you going to do with the gospel is the question. What do we do with Jesus Christ? Are we moved with contempt and say, look at that fool? Are we moved with unbelief and say, that's just not for me? Are we moved with curiosity I'm just not sure. I don't know. I don't know whether this is true or not true. I I need to learn more. Are you moved with envy like the Pharisees? And say, no way. I am not giving my life over to Jesus Christ. Or are you moved with joy and say, yes. I have found Christ. I have found true salvation. 
in him. I found peace with God. Just like the people who were there, everybody today faces these same questions. Who is Jesus Christ? Not who is he to you. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the king of the universe. And he's the one who came to pay for your sin on the cross. You owe him your life and you owe him your faith. If you haven't believed in Jesus Christ, will you believe in him? Do you understand that he is the true king and that one day every knee will bow to him, including yours? You can bow to him now in faith and humility and be great in the kingdom, or you can reject him now and not be a part of his kingdom. The choice is ours, and God gives that choice to us. I hope that you believe, and I hope that you've been blessed by thinking about who Jesus Christ is this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just giving us the opportunity to um, think through who you are. I thank you that you are the Word, and that the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that you are the creator of all that exists. I thank you, Father, for the prophecies in the Old Testament that lead us to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is, the, the one and true Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the King. But I thank you, Lord, that he went to the cross, not as a diversion, not as a detour, but he went there as a mission sent by you to suffer and die for the sins of mankind. And I thank you, Lord, for the, the peace and the joy and the happiness and the satisfaction that we can experience in life when we truly understand that our sins can be forgiven and that we believe that you are the Son of God and that you paid for our sin and that you rose again from the dead to prove who you were. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted in Jesus Christ for their personal salvation, that you would help them to understand who you are truly and what you've done for them. And Lord, for those of us who have believed, I pray that we would be encouraged and that we would be motivated to worship you even more because of what you've done and who you are. And just ask that you would bless our day and our, uh, the rest of our time together as we get ready to leave. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask Al if you would mind come up and just lead us in one last song. Um, no. Maybe we could sing uh, The Power of the Cross out of, out of the blue book there. Let's see, which one is that? Say again? 165. Let's stand, we'll sing the, the fourth verse, just the fourth verse. Oh, to see my name. 